0: Hey everybody, so far my number one episode of the year is with Steve Condert, Debt and Equity Advisor with CBRE. And I've got him back on the podcast today and we're gonna hear about what's going on in the debt and equity markets in 2023. Listen everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth, but why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start and most of the education out there is just complete trash and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property on this podcast you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is The Brenneman Blueprint. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Brenneman Blueprint. have Steve Kondert, Debt and Equity Advisor with CBRE, on the podcast. I think if you saw my uh, little intro video there, he's got the number one episode of 2023. So, um, but besides crushing my podcast, I mean, he's done billions of dollars of lending. Um, So happy to have you back on. And I think with this episode, wanna just kind of go maybe hear what's going on just with the debt and equity markets, and then maybe go kind of like lender type by lender type, just kind of slowly hear like what each one's doing and how, uh,
1: you know, how the year's going. Yeah, so. no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be back on. I'm always excited to come, uh, come do this. And there's been a lot of activity this year and a lot to talk about. Yeah. And I think if no, if people haven't seen the other two episodes we did, maybe just do like a quick background on yourself and I'm a debt and uh, equity intermediary. My title is a senior vice president with CBRE debt and Structured finance. And what that means is I'm a mortgage broker. So I place uh, both debt and structured equity products on behalf of my clients, all third party capital. We don't have any proprietary funds ourselves besides being a, an agency lender, uh, and, uh, work the entire spectrum of capital and the entire capital stack. Uh, so we're happy to again, be here and, uh, talk through what, uh, what's going on.
0: Awesome. Well yeah, I think then um, why, don't, uh, why don't we just start actually, why don't we why don't we go with a uh, different different order than maybe what we did on the first one? What would,
1: what would you say borrowers today would should be thinking about like first and foremost? Well, I think the, the primary concern with borrowers right now are interest rates, right? So you look back on the date of our last discussion and that was, I believe it was early March. And about a week and a half later was the, the banking crisis that we experienced. It was the, the, the second largest bank collapse since Lehman in 2008 with SVP, followed shortly by, by Signature and, and all the other middle market stress that, that we experienced. That really put the entire market into, into turmoil. So everything that we talked about in terms of, of actual interest rates and coupons during the last podcast, I think I even mentioned it in one of the comments, it became obsolete in a matter, in a matter of weeks. You now fast forward to today and how that has filtered through the market and the, the lending environment. And it has been, it has been very significant because going into the last podcast, we had the discussion that there was a lot of capital allocated for commercial real estate in 2023 the same if not more than 2022 because of the banking crisis a lot of that liquidity a lot of that allocation especially from the banking community seized up pretty tight the the middle market bank probably experienced the greatest pullback in liquidity because they were hoarding cash not knowing ultimately what their exposure would be to everything that uh, ultimately caused the problems with SVB and Signature. You had the, the larger money market banks that were already pulling back liquidity for smaller deals because of the amount of volume that they put into larger SASB deals that previously would have been CMBS last year. Uh, the local banks ironically, have not been impacted all that much either back in 2022 or through the crisis. But because of that pullback in liquidity from the the middle market banks, that created a pretty large vacuum of financing for that middle market investor because banks were holding back their money for either their primary clients or if they were extending new credit they were looking for in some cases unrealistic depository requirements i had one bank that that quoted me this was that for when i was marketing a loan back in april for a relatively generic power center retail deal Uh, they were looking for 10 to 15 percent of the loan amount in deposits now that's that's a large amount of, of money to bring over to a new bank I mean, they're in, they're almost asking for their their federal depository requirements to be fulfilled by that one borrower and that's just not realistic right. so it wasn't whether you call it a an attempt to be more aggressive in terms of trying to grab market share or you call it a an instance of quoting to not quote whatever the reason it was causing a big pullback in liquidity from that middle market banking yeah. And I mean, there. And in
0: something else we had talked about is, you know, rates shoot up. No one's paying off the loans. Like no one's, there's no trend. There's very few transactions. No one's refinancing unless they're forced to. So these banks are not getting payoffs. They're worried about if there's going to be a run on the bank. Right. And everything seizes up. What would, when you say middle market size, like what size are we talking? You're, you're
1: banks? looking, generically speaking, probably a five to fifteen million dollar maybe twenty million dollar loan amount uh so it's you know it's those those banks like a um you know the it, it put it in a chicago vernacular it's a it's a, a an old national or a wind trust of that you know that that ilk
0: because those are not small
1: banks no
0: know, they're to, not like no to they're me, not
1: where i think um
0: most of the bank lending i've done has been the borrowing i should say um has been with banks of that size or, or quite a bit smaller mm-hmm. and even even I know you're saying the smaller banks not impacted. What's interesting is, um, well, it won't be obvious to you and maybe not to the listener, but the like there's so much variation in what this, all these banks are doing, you know, so as I started smiling, I say the small banks aren't impacted. But then yet some are quoting 8% right now on, uh you know, on on loans or what's what's your fixed rate. And it's you know, pushing seven where it's almost like are we quoting to not quote or however you put it, where they'll still their, their uh, originators are still sending out quotes, but it's not realistic right. when you're competing with oh, Fannie and Freddie option, you know, that at the time was, you know, it's in the fives, percent.
1: Yeah, and I think that, that middle market bank was impacted the greatest because they are, they are big enough to have a sophisticated enough portfolio management and, and, and treasury department where they are diversifying their holdings into crypto, in, into a little bit more complicated CRE deals, into other deals, be that are just outside the purview of smaller local banks if you if you stay to what you know which is what the the smaller local banks do you're you're in less trouble but once you get out and start to get into the products that now have national and global economic tentacles right one something that happens over here is going to impact you here and that's that's where they started to experience the hardships and then and then realize that there might be liquidity problem yeah and Overboard many banks in crypto. I didn't, I guess I knew
0: that uh, Signature did something with crypto, but not. It's, uh, I'm using that as an example. Oh, okay, just uh, the stuff that's not uh, yes. real estate or traditional lending, where now we're, right, yeah. And then SVB had so much concentration with um, these clients of theirs that had just so much money in the bank, like Hulu had like 400 million in the bank. Correct. With them. Like that's not, not normal. Um, and, uh, but okay, well, yeah. So then I think let's just go kind of what each lender's doing, you know, in today's times, what does it look like for pros and cons and kind of requirements? And mm-hmm. I mean, rates change, but kind of generically, how does
1: it work? So, I mean, where do you want to so start? So we, uh, we can just go down, go down the list of capital providers and we'll, we'll try to tailor it a little bit to uh, a multifamily focus. Although uh, we can do broader than that too. Uh, if if you want, like mm-hmm. when you get to each. So the let's start with the agencies because I think that's obviously that the uh, the most prevalent source of capital for, for multifamily, and you know the, the agencies are still as liquid as they ever have been. Uh, the 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 goal for uh, allocation on the year or is has not changed. They're still quoting deals as aggressively as, as any lender in the market. Uh, there have been some changes to try to account for the turmoil in, in the interest rate market. For example, on the affordable program through Fannie Mae, they are now no longer offering a 35-year amortization. That's, that's programmatically across the board. Uh, so in, in yesterday's world, if you have a transaction where the rent rule fulfills the affordability requirements, which is... Uh, a percentage of, of AMI and makes it a percentage of mission driven deal because at its core the agencies I've discussed before they are their, their mission is to promote affordable housing. And this is not just necessarily tax credit deals. No this this, is, this, is, this, can, this does not have to be any any contractual or programmatic uh, 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 rent control or rent limitation. This is just where where is the rent roll snapshot in time relative to uh, to the larger market? So if you have a deal that is defined as affordable in yesterday's world, in addition to getting the discounted pricing, which can be every bit of 20 basis points off of conventional pricing, you also have a, the ability to size it to a 35 year sizing constant. So if you are looking to maximize your loan amount, it's going to be constrained by LTV, it's going to be strained by uh, uh, loan to cost, it's going to be constrained by debt service coverage. Debt service coverage is relative to what your payment constant is, which gets back to your amortization. So on a, an affordable deal, again, in yesterday's world, you could size that to a 35 year schedule, which would make it a lower payment, higher loan amount. But now going forward, even for 100% mission driven deals, they are eliminating that 35-year option, mm. so that that impacts it two ways. One, that impacts it as far as your sizing constant, as well as your actual payment coupon or your your payment constant. Because if you have an amortizing deal sized to a 35-year, again, not only is it going to size to a larger amount, but your an, your your annual and monthly payment will be will be lower. That's now 30 years across the board, so that is putting a little bit of strain on available capital for for affordable deals. So you now couple that with where rates are, and you know, generically right now, Fannie Mae rates are anywhere between five and three quarters and six, six and eighth for conventional deal, full, uh, full leverage type transactions. And on the affordable side, it's anywhere between five, I'll say, say five and a half, 560 to five and three quarters. Now, again, that's, that's a snapshot of time today. Uh, those spreads translate to somewhere around 150 to 160 for 100, 150, 160 basis points for affordable deals and anywhere from 175 to 200 for, for conventional deals. That is, hasn't moved all that much since both the last time we spoke as well as going back even to our probably our first podcast. What has changed is the index. So the you know the, the payment coupon is a, 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 a sum of the spread and the index. The index being the like maturity treasury for the duration of the loan. Five-year deal gets sized and priced over the five-year treasury, seven-year deal likewise over the seven-year treasury, 10-year deal likewise over the ten-year treasury. You look at the 10year treasury, which again, as of this morning, uh, and it's important to keep an eye on that given, uh, the, the durability of these, these podcasts on, on the internet. Yeah. But, uh, as of this morning, the 10 year treasury was yielding four Oh five. That is up 20 basis points from last week. That's up about 50 basis points from our last discussion back in March. So now you filter that through all the iterations of the sizing constant. What that really means is a lower loan amount on the same NOI. Yeah. And higher. Higher payment, exactly, you know, or right. higher interest rate. Yes, um, <clears throat> same payment, I guess, mm-hmm. for size a
0: max debt cover. But yeah, that's yeah, it's interesting. Where I feel like really for the last uh, nine months, let's say, I mean, for multiple for the deals we've looked at, every financing strategy has just been Fannie conventional, mm-hmm. uh, or I guess some f- Freddie Mac, Freddie small Mac as well. Yes. Um, well, it seemed like on the conventional side that every time we quoted something up, like Fannie was was was
1: bet was better as as we've talked about before that that pricing pendulum kind of swings back and forth as far as who's more competitive they're they're on the average about equal with each other uh snapshot in time sometimes one is priced better than the other
0: and then so it's it's been uh it's kind of been an interesting i guess nine months where it's like normally there's so many more options to look at and then this is like no the banks i mean most of them they're not really they're not really competitive right now compared to buying it with a fanny loan. And then just, let's say you got to renovate it, just renovate it out of the equity. You like raise more equity and renovate, um, you know, or do it from cash flow. but Mm -hmm. then focus on having the, like, uh, you know, I'd rather have a five and a half percent fanny rate fixed rate for five years than a bank or debt fund loan at seven or eight to have a construction style loan.
1: Yeah. And that, and that's a, that's a great segue to the next source of capital being debt funds and, you look at the debt fund market and it's almost non-existent right now. Not because, not because there aren't lenders in the market, not because there isn't liquidity in that sector, it's just really the cost of that capital makes it almost prohibitive to, to use those types of lenders. So the, a, a debt fund, which we have used before on, on some of your transactions, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is, can be a very useful tool for especially a heavy lift deal. They'll come in and, and potentially lend up to 80%, 85% of costs. They can give you future funding. Uh, they'll have an I.O. constant. Uh, some programs do have a streamlined refinance into an agency. So there, there's a lot of positive attributes. But because they are floating rate debt, because they are priced over, over the, the term SOFR right now, with term SOFR being north of 5% on a core multifamily deal, which is could be a, a spread of 3 3.5%, your, your coupons in, in the eights. And now you have something that's either higher leverage or requiring higher yield for whatever reason because of the risk profile. Now your your pricing is, is 9%. You look at uh, getting away from multifamily. You look at a debt fund on, on a retail deal or a land deal. You're in the double digits. And that just, when you are trying to solve for an all-in return, that makes that source of capital extremely hard to navigate. On top of, the interest rate protection that you have to purchase which because of the yield curve is can be anywhere between two and four points of the loan amount right now on top of the regular transaction costs because most debt funds of size are are a securitized product they are securitizing that into a clo and uh because of the exit fee so you have typically have a an, uh, an entrance fee and an exit fee entrance of one percent and, and eg- one oh, percent loan amount exit fee of uh, anywhere between nothing to to 25 basis points to 50 basis points of the loan amount you add all of that together those are significant transaction costs that now you have to build into the overall project cost and it makes things it makes things very hard and you look at the overall securitized market and the the overall securitized market this includes CLO this includes CMBS this, this includes agency MBS it is at a 12-year low in terms of volume for the first half of the year. Uh, the first half of 2023, uh, it was, uh, I believe, it was about $41 billion of total securitizations. Again, that's across all securitized platforms. That is down 70% over the same time last year. And again, a 12-year low. And I think that is because of... a. Uh, Not only the CMBS market, which we can touch on in a minute here, but now you look at, again, everything we just talked about regarding the the debt fund market that is putting a big, big strain on on that source of capital.
0: Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, I don't you know, at least for when Fannie and Freddie are an option, I don't I mean, it'd be very rare someone want to use a debt fund now in a multifamily deal. Mm -hmm. I could see it. where sure if you have a hotel or something an office building where the cap rate's going to be higher and there's less in the agencies aren't an option, you know, I would imagine most of that 41 or whatever billion that was done. It was, it wasn't a lot of multifamily.
1: No, it so. wasn't actually of the, and that, that's another great segue. So if you look at the, 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 the the private label CMBS so non agency MBS non CLO so that when you when you say CMBS that's what most people think about is you know the the, the Goldmans and the and the Citi's that that type of CMBS paper it was about uh, is about three and a half percent of total volume this year has been multifamily deals of of the uh, it's about sixteen and a half billion private label so far this year. Um, so, you know, three, three and a half percent of that has been multifamily. That's, that's nothing.
0: Yeah. I'm not surprised. I saw actually someone posted who this person invests in industrial property. And I didn't want to bother pointing this out cause I like him. but he, um, he posted a chart of CMBS delinquencies by product type and how industrial was the best. And, you know, multifamily was above it.
1: And I was gonna,
0: I was gonna reply like who on earth is, you using CMBS for, uh, for multifamily. Like you don't. I
1: mean, the n- not only does the the agencies provide enough liquidity and in a in a superior product to CMBS uh, because of the way that they can size their loans, but the not only the pricing of CMBS is higher even on even on core product, multifamily or industrial. But also the the rating agencies they hit the sizing for multifamily exceptionally hard. So a loan that would potentially size and I'm using generic numbers, but potentially size for seventy five percent leverage through through one of the agencies is is coming up at you know the high sixties or seventy percent for uh, for for CMBS. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we've talked about that where it's mm-hmm. the rates worse,
0: the proceeds are less, the service is worse. It's more expensive. It's like what is there to what is there to like for exactly yeah but exactly. if you're doing the other product types and that's not an option this is one of the reasons i like multifamily. is you mm-hmm. always have this consistent whatever it is combined 150 billion a year of lending from the agencies mm-hmm. um i never remember the exact number so i usually just round yep. it, that I round it off and then i go it's a 50 billion or more from mm-hmm. each is what i say because it's like 70 or 80 each or something and i just i don't want to be wrong but also i don't want to be like
1: 73 and a half billion is the cap this year or whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, so. as long as we're talking about securitized products, I think it, it is interesting to note as it ties back to the agencies is how, because it is, it is all tied together, right? The, the, the American and global economy, it, it all interacts with everything else, which makes it uh, both fascinating and frustrating <clears throat> that one sector can impact the other as much as it does. But you look at spreads in uh, both CMBS, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac K-series securitized deals, and spreads did blow out pretty significantly in the second quarter after the banking crisis because one of the largest, if not the largest, buyer of CMBS paper and agency paper and one-off Fannie Mae securitizations is... Regional banks, so now once they started pulling back on their liquidity, hoarding cash, that left a big vacuum for investors on the back end. What so what you are left now is the second largest buyer, which is hedge funds. Hedge funds inherently need a a higher cost of capital. So as you as they as the traders went out to try to place that paper, smaller buyer pool, obviously you need to have higher yields, lower cost. And that's what that's what caused the, the spreads to go out now that is starting to settle down a little bit in the market today which is why the the spreads so you know, fannie made generic spreads have come in probably about 15 bips over the last 30 45 days because you have more buyers into the market but it is uh, it is will be interesting to continue to monitor what that market looks like because it all it all is intertwined
0: yeah, no, it's yeah, it's interesting. Everything's always changing, and <clears throat> I mean, even a little bit ago, we were talking about how the the debt fund spread blew out, um, but now sounds like those are back to like normal. I mean, the rates are still, you know, not great because of where so far is mm-hmm. at. But for a minute, it was like the debt funds are getting their warehouse lines pulled so to still make whatever return they need to make for the fund, nine percent, ten percent. I'm not sure what they're trying to make, but they need to have us a, a big enough spread on the smaller amount of loans now. So now it's sulfur plus five for a little bit. I mean, when did that kind of go back to the, like a 300 something spread? That started
1: happening over the summer again, as the banking crisis subsided, because uh, you're, you're exactly right as they have their warehouse lines, which uh, the warehouse lines primarily came from the banks and from the, especially the larger money center banks, they had to price their capital accordingly to, either hoard cash or get enough yield to put it out the door. There, the, the, the cost of those warehouse lines went up the, and then in turn to get the yield that the debt funds needed they, uh, they in turn had to increase their spreads. Now there were uh, a couple of funds a couple of debt funds that uh, fund 100% off their balance sheet <clears throat> and if you're, if you're funding an unlevered loan it has to be in today's world a 9.5-10% you know, to, to make that work because that's more or less what they are they are sizing to on a levered basis when, when they're levering up their position. Uh, but because of the, the, the cost of capital coming in from the warehouse lines, those spreads did come in. So you, you are seeing core the core multifamily, core industrial, Debt fund spreads in some cases dropping back below three hundred, but uh, you know firmly in the three hundreds for uh, for for modest deals and back into the four hundreds for higher yielding deals, which is probably in about 100, 150 basis points from our last discussion.
0: We're back to normal, but I mean, it doesn't. It's a moot point right now. Most of the work. it's so because for of that, that index, if you're right, yeah, yeah, if you're in multifamily. But then, so what are so? And you you have clients that are doing really every product type. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like so. Um. What, what are people doing for financing on the you know, commercial deals? So industrial, retail hotels, like what does that look like
1: today? For, for core industrial uh, again, core multifamily, low leverage multifamily, the life companies are still dominating that market. You know we are seeing spreads for low leverage core deals in the, the 140s, in some cases 150s over over the treasury. Uh, which you know, is a is a mid fives coupon again in today's world, uh, in yesterday's world it was touching you know five or, or sub five going back thirty days, uh, and on on retail, uh, I mean that's a, that could be a discussion for a whole other podcast. But uh, generically, grocery anchor deals are still getting bid pretty aggressively. I have a a, a quote in hand on a jewel anchor deal here in Chicago, well located inner ring neighborhood. That uh, was priced at 155 over for a 55% loan. Uh, again, that's a that's a, a a life company loan with prepayment flexibility. Uh, loan amount on that is it's smaller in size. It's a you know mid teens loan amount. Uh, once you get away from grocery anchored into the the power centers, uh, you start to drop off a little bit in terms of available capital. Uh, larger power centers, secondary locations. It's pretty much CMBS only, which is really putting a a pause in the investment sales market for uh, for larger format retail. Because given where spreads are in the CMBS market, given where the index is in CMBS market, I mean that could be every bit of a seven percent uh, loan coupon. So your what that's doing is that's pushing up the uh, the cap rates at which these are trading. And in some cases, the nine as investors look to 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 get the the delta in yield between their their cost of capital and their and their return. Uh, hotels, uh, I'm not very active in that sector. Although I do know there is, especially for well located larger uh, full service hotels, there does seem to be some liquidity in the market. Uh, Self storage continues to be a very active product type. Life companies are are continuing to to have interest in that, and you know again, industrial is uh, as as strong continues to be as strong as it ever has been, with uh, multiple lenders chasing deals in the in the you know mid one hundred type spreads. And it has the lowest CMBS delinquency it has of a all, yes, it does of all CMBS yes, uh, loans. So,
0: um, yeah, no, that makes sense because I I. Uh, um, Uh, yeah the thing what's interesting when you're talking about the retail power centers i mean i think we had talked about this deal when it was for sale Actually, i know we did because you had asked me something about it but a deal in minnesota that um not to name it but where it would have been like a trophy you know in the 10 years ago like a six cap you Mm -hmm. know kind of thing when interest rates were in the sixes you know where it would have been you know a million people all over it and now it's like uh you know, it's like the poster child of like businesses going out. It's like we got the Toys R Us, they're gone. Then we got like down the line, and it's in one of the best suburbs, right? And a great location, and it's like wasn't even selling at like a nine cap. So it's it's kind of wild to see what's um like how bifurcated retail is, and then um, like where then and then you have you know whatever the Chick Fil A on the corner selling probably for a three cap.
1: the 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 single tenant net lease business continues to be extremely hot, especially for trade buyers who are looking to, and and that's really more a preservation of wealth rather than creation of wealth type approach. So you have to your point a Chick fil A or or another one of these STNL deals that uh, are still trading in the the you know in some cases you know high threes, mid fours. I mean there is a uh, there is a, a transaction to which I am staple on the investment sales side here in Chicago. Single tenant deal, technology company, very high profile. Everyone knows the deal if you if you look for it. That it's going to probably trade at about a four and a half cap. And uh, and this is in the Lincoln Park neighborhood. Now, if you look to try to lever that, you can't do it because there is no debt low enough to make positive leverage. So who's the buyer profile in that? It's a trade buyer, typically coming off one of the coasts that are that have sold something and now just looking to deploy into a into a four and a half yield for however long they hold it. If it's if it's a long term generational type client, they might just hold it for for a while. Otherwise, they might uh, hang on to it and then resell into a lower interest rate environment in the future. But that that market continues to be strong. But uh, you're getting back to the multi-tenant retail. I'm I'm not quite as draconian as some people are on the product type. I I tend to like retail quite a bit, grocery anchored. Uh, there's always a need for, for grocers. You know, wherever wherever you are in the country, regardless of the market, there is a need for for grocery. Now, is there capital that'll chase it into a you know a tertiary or subtertiary location in, in the middle of the Midwest or Southeast? Well, no. But there are still recourse lenders that will that will uh, lend in that environment and you can still achieve positive leverage. And then for power centers, I think we are in an environment today where the Tenants that should still be in business are in business. The tenants that should not be, we have seen largely a lot of them go to the wayside, You know whether that be the the bed baths of the world or some of the, the office supply companies. The tenants that remain tend to be doing fairly well. And because of the yield possibility, I mean, where else can you buy a, a, a well-known, I don't want to say trophy asset, but uh, I would say acknowledged asset, a large uh, visible asset with a yield on 9% unlevered. You, know, you can now lever that even with 7% CMBS debt, you could lever that to a 16%, 17% return. Compare that to multifamily at, at 10% or 12% or whatever the number is. Now, that's not to take away anything from the attributes of multifamily in terms of being able to raise rents monthly or uh, to annually. Uh, uh and and everything the associated with the why people like multifamily but it's not a 17% leverage return
0: yeah and i you know it's interesting that on a podcast that i did with tyler heg um kind of around the same time we did our last one and he was about to say like you know and he's a multifamily broker and he was like you know what product type i is actually going to do him pretty well and like surprising and i I don't want to like ruin his point, but I think on that one I did and I was like retail because I still have four retail deals. I yeah. know we haven't lost any tenants for the small shop retail rents have been growing and yeah. And the cap rates have always been higher. These are smaller deals. We've been doing these, you know, bank loans with swaps. And so we have all of our deals, um, two are in the 5% from mm-hmm. 2018. So those we were kicking ourselves for forgetting. And all the other ones are 3.1% 10 year fixed and 3.28 the other. And so that adds up to well, one of those, those industrials. So, yeah, I think we get four or five retail deals. After I count them up, but they, um, uh, but yeah, so those, my partner on those always is like, these are my favorite deals. <laughs> like these- the
1: well-located strip center deals are, are very liquid assets. So if you look at the hierarchy of, of retail, it's, uh, in terms of lender preference, it's grocery anchored. It's, it's well-located strip retail. And, and then it's, it's your it's your power centers. And, you know, I don't think my, my arm is long yeah. enough to show you where malls rank. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's much below that. But yeah. it, I mean, just a couple of data points. And again, this is a snapshot in time. But uh, you know grocery anchor deal here in Chicago, one 155 spread, 55%. I have a power center in uh, in Lake County, uh, northern Illinois, that we have life company interest at uh, a 250 spread. We have bank interest uh, quoting coupon at uh, six and an eighth, 6% for the right sponsor. I have a, a power center in uh, uh, suburban Cleveland. That the coupon is going to be, you know, plus or minus right around six and three quarters. I have a grocery anchor deal in Nashville where the, the, the coupon, it's uh, based off of a, a 175 spread. So you, you now filter that through the cap rate at which they're being acquired, and that's, that's, that's positive leverage.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting to hear. Yeah, and the part of retail that I like when where you had your, your arm there um, is, yeah, not the single tenant. Yeah, the yield's too low, um, you know, but then you get into this multi-tenant, small shop space, and then the cap rates are higher because it's not single tenant, which from a risk standpoint doesn't make any sense. Right. You know, but hey, that sounds great to me. Higher cap rate for diversified rent roll. I'll take it. And so, yeah, so I've, I've liked those deals. And I think... um you know, it makes a lot of sense. It's just, it's, and you can combine that with like value add strategy. And know, hey, this tenant's below market. Just kind of wait for their renewal, or um, if they go out of business, it's actually like will be positive for mm-hmm. the building. Yeah, the only thing that I'd say with talking about the power centers um, is, yeah, that I feel like this that's a market that's in decline. So I, I know that sounds great. It's a nine cap right now. What cap rate you selling that at and are your rents going to be higher or lower when you sell
1: and that's so it's it's where our rents today versus where are rents going to be tomorrow or even what our rents are in place versus where rents today and the co-tenancy co-tenancy because especially with these larger centers some of them shadow anchored you have co-tenancies tied back in some cases to stores you have no control
0: yeah and to, so to unpack that these co-tenancy clauses in these leases It'll say if, uh, I mean, to just name a name, let's say you're in a shopping center and the the main draw is Walmart or Costco. It'll say, or the grocery store, it'll say in the lease for the other tenants, if this grocery store, if Costco closes, we, we get to pay 50% of our rent or something like that. So you have this whole... Um, thing can just kinda of implode quickly and then couple that with a bank loan with that's, a debt service coverage that's covenant. Yep. And uh, you know, I've I've seen that uh firsthand not in a deal of mine, but just where um plenty of times people explaining here's how this thing went wrong and it's those just dominoes
1: a, start to fall awfully fast.
0: A parade of horribles, uh things cascading down where at least in you know, multifamily your rents can drop, but there's no there's no debt service coverage covenants in the agency loans. There's not it's it's, you can you can sleep at night a little better. Exactly. So. Plus, you have
1: the ability, as as mentioned, to raise rents annually. So I, I, I'm not I'm not advocating if you are a multifamily investor at your core to jump on the retail ship. I was just using that example of where where yields are still possible in this market.
0: Yeah. And I, I think in, it's it's uh, it was helpful for me to work on these other product types and, you know, to understand why I like multifamily, and there's there's pluses and minuses to each. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if multifamily is going to be the most liquid and safest, you know, de- I guess debatable, or what time period you're looking at multifamily compared to industrial, but they're right there with each other. Like, yeah, the returns aren't just for your generic stabilized deal. It's not going to be as high as something that's more risky. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, yeah, it's interesting to to think about and talk about, and um, I think that's one area where. Like it kind of is going under the radar where to a lot of people they're just retail and office are not investable, but there are parts that are. Um, to to kind of what we've talked about, retail deals that make sense, and I haven't mm-hmm. looked into it much, but uh, you know there there's probably office deals that make sense to do. Where I saw an article that I didn't read, but just saw the headline, and it was like sixty percent of all office vacancy, some percent that was very high, is in ten percent of the buildings. Mm-hmm. So then if you were like, okay, if you got rid of that, it's like this market and maybe it's not, it's not uh doesn't have every tailwind in the world behind it, like self storage or a multifamily or industrial, but it's m- maybe is a more neutral. It's
1: not a complete disaster. I think the office market is an extreme example, but it's not unlike the opportunity in every sector right now. Are there, are there fundamentally good office deals? Right now, yes, there are that have some vacancy. Yes, there are. Are there still some some bad office deals that probably no one should touch? Unfortunately, yeah, there are. But you you look at that opportunity for an investor to come in and acquire these, again, fundamentally sound, well-located deals at a an attractive basis. That is the opportunity that we're seeing across all property types, multifamily included, where you have, because of the disconnect right now in cost of capital and market cap rates, there, you can, and this is an unequivocal across the board, but there is opportunity to pick up multifamily, to pick up retail, to pick up office, probably not industrial, but to pick up uh, a majority of assets or an opportunity to pick up some assets at a basis play, given where interest rates are. Yeah. Might, will you have negative leverage for a couple of years? Yeah, you might. But if you are not th- there, and that's the difference between being an entrepreneurial investor with, a, with patient equity versus a fund where you have to make a, essentially a current return. If you are an entrepreneurial investor, you have patient equity, whether it's yours or, or someone else's, you can almost look at some of these acquisitions as a basis play knowing that you might have higher interest rates today, negative leverage for a couple of years, but then you refinance, but now you're in a, you know, you're into a deal at a basis. That's 70% of what it could be once rates return. Now, again, if you're a fund investor or you're, you're using a fund structure, you need to make those payments on a regular basis or else you don't get to the next fund that won't work for you in that scenario. Uh, So in that case, the opportunity is not as prevalent, but I, you know, I, I look in, in times like this of disruption, there's there's certainly going to be pain, but there's also still a lot of opportunity, and I think that is for the astute investor the time to be going in and looking on the long term. You can't look at your return on a three year IRR or five year IRR basis because of that negative leverage; it's going to kill it. But if you can if you can buy a multifamily deal that is in a in a normal market a whatever it is a 300 a unit deal and you're able to buy it for 225 a unit, well now once though that market stabilizes that's I mean, that's 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 where fortunes are made yeah
0: and it's interesting I haven't I still I know uh, you know obviously prices dropped but the stuff that does come on the market in multifamily there's still so much activity on it I mean of mm-hmm. uh, the, the nice stuff where we um, a deal we put an LOI and in Dallas it was widely marketed it's so not normally how we buy but there were 29 offers on it hmm so while that seller was under some distress if you get twenty nine offers, the price reflects no distress. They made right. a great market, and um, it's going at a big price. You know, so um, so it's been. It's I do agree with you. Or yeah, if you can buy something for thirty percent less than it was two seconds ago, like that should just make sense already. But part of the reason the prices were where they were is because everything was growing so fast, then
1: you're assuming there's growth. Well, and you do have those fund investors that have a mandate to get money out the door. So they, they, they in some cases, are, are just looking to buy product. Uh, sometimes, you know, you'll be damned as far as, as what's available out there. And that's, that's pushing up the price artificially high versus where it should be. Interesting. Yeah, so that's
0: where I've still been sort of waiting for like, hey, here's the distressed price. I mean, it's, because also the thing that's happened is if you had to sell a normal amount of properties in a year, yeah, prices would be down twenty plus percent. But what's happening is transaction volumes down, depending on where it is, fifty to eighty percent. So then, yeah, there's less buyers as well. But there's still a lot of buyers on very few deals, which then keeps the pricing for what does sell, has been keeping it pretty well supported. Yeah. So
1: that's so why well, we haven't bought anything in a year, you know, <laughs> like. So, well um, and it's and again we've talked about this before it's it's that discipline that that ultimately your investors appreciate to to know what you're good at to know what what deals you should be chasing and that's that's the the highlights you put on your brochure right it's not it's not how many deals have you bought it's this is the return at which we bought them I mean anyone can go out and pay X4 for, for a deal but if that X is, 50% above where it should be. I and mean, that's, that's nothing to brag about. Right. Yeah. you just paid the most. Yeah. Uh,
0: and yeah, cause that I've had, you know, we've had a lot of uh, new investors sign up in the last year and, you know, nothing to get in front of them. So it's been, uh, been, been frustrating obviously, but also too, like there's no point in my mind of like pushing deals. Mm-hmm. Then they're, you know, a poor return for everybody. You're even selfishly, it's like you're kind of working for nearly for free if you don't hit your promote and these things are a lot of work and risk and um, too. So I have started telling people like, be really careful with what um, you're if there's other deals out there to invest in, because too, right now, if you like, hey, we need to bring in money like, yeah, you could push a deal like another sponsor or somebody. And then like this was the highest bidder of the twenty nine bids, you know, and now that's the deal you're investing in. Whereas you talked to me and I was like, hey, I feel like there's going to be the deals will really start flowing in three months. So we don't mm-hmm. have anything. Mm-hmm. And not that we're not looking and I don't know it'll be in three months, but at least right now I don't have anything for you. And then I, I worry a little bit for that investor, like that passive investor. Then they go to the next place that, hey, yeah, we've got three deals right now. And it's right. Yeah. Cause you were the highest bidder <laughs> of the 30 right. on each one. And you're assuming, you know, your numbers assume big rent growth or, or like the base case has refine uh, pulling money out or lower rate, um, which I think that'll happen, but I, I don't want that in my base case to assume rates go down to four and a half. Right. Like if someone said, what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years? Yeah. I think most of these deals you buy them now, it's just like you said, a basis play. You're buying it for so much less than before. Your returns end up looking great when you're done, but it'll surprise you how it'll play out. Rents, maybe they don't grow at all for two years. Then they explode the last half of your ownership period. At some point in the next year or two, you refi at four and a half percent interest and pull money out right. and return it. And so I think it'll go well. It's just, it's interesting. You start underwriting all those scenarios in it. And it's like the deal feels like it's juiced, you know. But I think that can happen. And that's what happened to the deals we bought in 2009 and 10 and 11, where we bought them because there was a lot of cash flow. Right you know, and now there's not so there's not even that to hang your hat on now because that was our thesis was like, at least we can buy these. And even if the market's always bad, uh, at least we're cash flowing double digits. So don't overthink it. And now instead, it's like the cash flow. Yeah, it's like what treasuries make, but there's the upside and you're paying the loan down. It's not as enticing, um, but I think it'll probably work out about the same way. So then um, for transitional properties, then let's let's talk about that. So when, when we do we're we're, you know, in order to hit any decent return, now you have to be doing value add, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you want to place money of your own or something, I mean, stabilize properties, that's great. Or what well, we just talked about, perfect for a refi. Um, let's say you're buying a value add deal. Um, maybe let's do multifamily. last to switch it up. If you're buying a value add
1: commercial deal, what, what would we be looking at for, for debt? bank? I mean, it's and that's not to be a, a flippant answer, but uh, for for you know retail or office. I mean, there I don't want to say there is no value add program, but there's not. I mean, the vacancy in place for retail is usually there for a reason. Vacancy in place for office is there for a reason, unless it's extraordinarily located, and and for some reason they there. the vacancy was caused by, I don't even know the reason that would, that would draw institutional capital. It's going to be for the most part recourse bank lending. Uh, They're just, even with a, a call a retail or an office deal where you have some near term role, structuring, pardon me, structuring good news dollars for those transactions are extremely tough because any additional dollar advanced isn't necessarily accretive to NOI. You are just replacing cash flow. So your debt yield stays the same, your your debt cover stays the same. So you're really looking at a bank that knows you as a sponsor and can ride with you. I mean that's how our
0: uh our commercial deals that are not they're not value add our financed. It's yep. all bank. It's all it's all recourse. Um you know, the loan to values are low, so it does, I don't mind being on those. But yeah, that's that's all it is. And I, I was just thinking you'd say debt fund, though, too. I mean, they don't they They just mostly chase after multifamily then
1: or what? Do Short answer is yes, like? they do uh, to they to, do what to, to chase, chase after oh, okay. multifamily. Uh, in some cases, some industrial, but the industrial market continues to be so hot that even an industrial deal with vacancy is almost priced um, as a stabilized deal because of the leasing velocity that's available. So you, in terms of what a debt fund is doing, it's it's almost stressed exclusively multifamily. It's interesting. I didn't know that. I figured they were doing all sorts of other product types. Actually,
0: I never looked at it.
1: Uh, in terms of the the major types, not not really. Uh, so I mean, think about think about a retail deal with vacancy. If 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 you are sitting on vacancy for a while, there's a reason why that that site hasn't been hasn't been released. If you're sitting on Vacancy that you can release investors will release it themselves and then and then realize that in terms of in terms of the a lower cap rate It's not like you have And again, this gets back to the attractiveness of a multifamily deal You don't have a loss to lease consideration in some cases you do but you can't realize it as quickly uh, You can't really increase rents by a renovation of the property or you know, you can't go you know, add a pool to a shopping center and all of a sudden raise rents $50. You can't give them a washer and dryer and raise fence, rents $50. So you don't have that value-add opportunity that you would with multifamily. And in terms of pricing that risk, the debt funds are are more inclined to hold on to their capital for multifamily deals versus going into retail.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought there were more, more options. I mean, we went the bank route just because the rates were – have always been the best, and then, um, you know, it's basically been free to work with this bank in terms of origination costs, Mm -hmm. where we're going direct and there's no origination there, like they're just waving everything, so, but, um, okay, nice, yeah, then I think for, then transitional multifamily, What? and actually, wait, so on the the bank rates, we ever get into what bank interest rates
1: are today, high fives, low sixes, right now,
0: okay, for stabilized
1: deals, did you say or? for both? Uh, they, they tend to price their, their money about the same. Um, it really just depends on how you structure it. True transitional deals might be for swap based. So you're looking at maybe a 250 type spread, given where silver swaps are, um, you know, you're still wind up in that same kind of cost of capital range. Uh, but it's it's going to be really close to being on top of each other in terms of in terms of pricing.
0: And then are most banks doing their fixed rate stuff with swaps? Then or correct. What are they? Okay.
1: Yes, there's th- there's a few exceptions. Uh, credit unions often price on a fixed rate base almost exclusively, and they'll price it um, on a coupon. But it's over it's really based off of over the treasury. Uh, it's when you get into more regional and money center banks so that you actually start doing seeing the this the the SOFR swap based type lending
0: okay and then uh, so transitional multifamily, what are we looking
1: at as as discussed a little bit ago the the debt fund market is still very active you know we are seeing in some cases spreads in the in the 200s up through the mid300s for that you know the all-in coupon set aside in terms of it being you know eight nine percent. But what that just means is you build that into the project cost. And if ultimately the the returns make sense, then that's just a that's just a cost of of, of doing business. You build that into, into your return model and see see if it makes sense because of the leverage capability, and you know, you can still still size down to a you know a five in some cases below debt yield and stabilize out at a at a, a seven debt yield that money is otherwise hard to find. And the banks typically won't go that low in debt yield. They'd be looking for some level of coverage you have, you know, covenants you have to to, to deal with once you get further on in the, in, the, in the whole period. So the debt funds still continue to be the most active for transitional deals. And because of, again, the prevalence of bridge to agency type transactions on multifamily deals, especially we are usually able to negotiate that exit fee down to a relatively small amount, what call the 25 BIPs, have it waved together, whatever it is. But that, you know, that, that does help and provides a streamlined access into, into the agency market. And so debt funds, I guess I haven't
0: had a debt fund thing sized up in a long time. They're sizing to down to a five
1: debt yield at times? Ultimately, they're sizing to what the exit looks like. And if the, if the assumptions f- to get to that exit are reasonable, they can size as low as five. Or in some cases, uh, theoretically, they could size to a zero debt yield. I mean, you could have a completely vacant vacant building. If it is well located, if there's uh, data to support that you can lease it up, there is theoretically lenders for that deal. Uh, typically, that's we don't see that very often, but that, that, that can't happen. So, again how that exit looks, the reality of the assumptions to get there, that's the biggest driver. How are they sizing the exit then? Those, they'll be sizing to typically an agency exit. so they're looking at they'll making some interest rate assumptions as far as where rates will be, what coverage will be and then in terms of, of debt yield, a stabilized debt yield of plus or minus you know seven, seven and a half in, in, in today's market. Although again in today's market we're seeing less sizing to debt yield and more of what coverage might be. When stabilized, when, when, when stabilized, refi- typically on a non-trended basis with rents, non-trended mean that what are rents today on a stabilized unit and and moving forward, the entire complex rented at those levels in two, three years, whenever that work is done, trended being if you have, you know, two and a half five percent rent growth annually, they're not typically going to give you the benefit of that year over year over year rent growth. They're going to look at in place uh, on the assumption. And this is to keep things a little bit more conservative on the assumption that you aren't able to achieve those. Right. And yeah, that's, uh,
0: um, makes, makes sense to me why they would do that. I mean, that's, um, you know, when you're a lender it's glass half full, usually exactly half, right. half, half empty. Sorry. Right. And they, uh, yeah. And the way I like to explain untrended is actually is, uh, Evan who works here explained it as if you could just snap your fingers and you could just reset it all today's prices. Yes. It's like oh it's a little faster way because i do it the same way that you do where it's okay it's growing so it's actually it's in the future but you can't you don't grow the, the costs or the rents it's you it's in today's prices but it's at the end of the loan mm-hmm. and it's uh the snap
1: your fingers i liked so yep. feel free yeah yeah but why use one word when you can use three yeah, yeah. that doesn't it's, uh that doesn't fill up time on a podcast yeah that's does it? right
0: so but yeah i think then maybe um then the equity that you you do it's more would be helping folks find like pref equity uh why don't we when you tell us a little bit about mm-hmm.
1: that. Yeah, so uh, if the, the last podcast we talked a lot about that given the the sizing disconnect of, of in place loans today relative to what a new loan might look like. Because rates are higher, loans are not sizing to the same level as they were before. So in some cases you would have a loan that just called generically on a ten million dollar deal, the in place loan amount is six and a half million dollars it sizes based on rate to six million dollars today value is is still there there's still real equity in those transactions so the so the borrower doesn't want to walk away from the deal nor do they potentially want to sell because that sizing constraint why we're coming up with that six million dollars is because of interest rates we are in a hopefully artificially high interest rate environment today you fast forward a year might be lower you can refinance out at that point or sell at that point and and realize all of his equity. So what do we do for that $500,000? We go out and find PREF equity. There's a number of funds that have been raised specifically to come in and provide PREF equity, PREF equity being the slug of capital between senior debt and common equity or or sponsorship equity. That is sometimes structured as a coupon, sometimes structured as an overall return. But what that does is that uh, it gives the the lender comfort because you have a new investor coming in, typically of an institutional or institutional adjacent profile that will signify to them that there is wherewithal behind the equity if something should continue to to go wrong. Uh, And the sponsor likes it because they are now paying a, a set rate they're able to hold on to their deal. If things right size, they can pay them off and still, and still hold on to their, their asset and realize their entire equity. PREF Equity likes it because they're getting a set return and they now have a path to ownership at a reduced basis should things continue to go wrong. So you have, uh, PREF Equity will invest in a deal that they, they want to own. The common equity wants to bring in PREF equity because they don't want to lose a deal they want to own. And the lender is happy because they don't want to own it, and they know that these other guys will now step in and keep things from going wrong. And what's the range of rates you're seeing? 10%, 12% on a coupon basis. Probably you know, on, a, on an IRR basis, it's probably low you know, low double digits, somewhere, somewhere in there. And that can be... It's it's typically more on a coupon basis because that means that the deal is still performing. It's just it's it's just an interest rate issue. If you now have to structure the pref equity in terms of a a, a cumulative return situation, that means there's no cash flow or stunted cash flow, and now you get into a little bit more complicated structure as far as how that looks. So most of the pref equity you're seeing, it's a fully current pay. Most of the funds are set up in that situation, yes. Not to say that's that's all of them, but that that is, uh, that is how most of them are structured right now.
0: That's interesting because I would think a very common scenario to bring in PREF would be, okay, I was in this deal, I had a debt fund loan, I had a great interest rate cap, so I was paying like the equivalent of 5% interest. Now my new loan is uh, being sized by, it's an agency loan, the rates in the high fives, but it's being sized more conservatively than the debt funds were when everything was so hot, so now I need to add money. But yeah, it's like- Yeah, I guess so. I should
1: clarify that. The, the, the coupon is more for stabilized deals uh, that are facing a refinance hurdle. Um, if you are in a lease up transaction that you may not have full cash flow, in that case, it's not gonna be current because there is gonna be no cash flow. And so in that case, you would you would structure to an overall return, not an in place.
0: But even actually where I was going with the scenario, it was it is stabilized now but you're rolling off this great bank loan or debt fund loan where you had either a cap in place or something where now you're, you're rolling into, uh, you know, a higher interest rate thing. That's also being sized more conservatively, which means you need to add money. Mm-hmm. Now you don't, ha- you don't have, you don't have the money to add. You don't want to sell when prices are low you bring in the pref. So I was thinking most of the pref was accruing. I didn't, it's not something we've needed to do. So I haven't looked into it, but I thought it was more cause it, like that borrower, they don't have a lot of room to pay. Um, pay out any money on pref because they already got it sized at a pretty tight debt cover. So they, I guess they do have the extra, tw- you know, 20%, 25% of Yeah. I, I, it's, it,
1: it's going to be deal dependent as, as is everything. Uh, you know, if you're, if your coverage is, you know, sub one Oh, or, or one Oh, obviously you'd have to, that's going to be a different scenario uh it it really is depending on where you are in the cycle that deal and and how constrained you are in that refinance yeah and i guess actually it's only on a i'm thinking
0: okay if the deal after your refi might be the cash on cash on all the equity would be like five percent then how do you pay 12 but actually that's just on a small sliver of all the equity just what's
1: being added so correct so so in our our scenario earlier that was for only five hundred thousand dollars of the the three and a half million dollars of equity. Okay,
0: so yeah, then a lot of the cash flow is going to this, to that, the interest on this five hundred thousand. It farm. it oh,
1: is, yeah. but it allows the common equity or the sponsor to maintain ownership over the over the over the. Deal. Yeah, okay, no, that makes sense. I was actually just wanted to unpack that
0: because I, like I said, we haven't done any pref, so I just assumed it was more a scenario where. Yeah, we want to keep it, but the deal's not going amazing. So we we also don't have the cash to pay 12% interest, obviously. So we need mm-hmm. to do like six now and six accruing or something. So I just but then that, um, that doesn't sound as good for the PREF lender. Then it's like you're getting paid just like a senior note rate and then like more on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, no, I got it. I think, you know, I guess maybe let's wrap up. But one thing that you had... Um, have talked to me a, a lot about over the the years was you know different let's say tips when financing like one of them is like matching your loan up with your business plan I mean you want to talk about that for a minute anything else that you think would be important and then let's get right yeah on. so
1: because of the yield curve because of where interest rates are today a lot of my clients are understandably pursuing shorter term money now the the, the lending community also understandably has a glut of longer term money they are trying to to get out the door because of if you can if you can lock in a 10 year deal from a lender perspective at today's rates obviously that's that's longer longer yield for for a longer amount of time or a higher yield for a longer amount of time so what we are seeing is a lot of seven year deals a lot of 10 year deals with prepayment flexibility Uh, now Prepayment flexibility. If you look at what, what what that means is, let's call it on a seven-year deal. It might be a yield maintenance for two, and then a five, four, three, two, one step down. So that you know that number is a percentage of the outstanding loan amount. If you pay off in in year three, it's five percent. If you pay off in in year seven, it's one percent. Uh, you can buy that flexibility, especially from the life companies, for a relatively inexpensive amount of money. Uh, call it ten to fifteen basis points added to the spread. Uh, now lenders. Knowing that our also pricing in terms of spread and then also because of, of where the underlying index is, we're still inverted in our cost of capital. Five-year money right now is typically more expensive than 10-year money, even at the same spread because of the virtue of the, of the inverted yield curve. But to your point of what should borrowers be considering is, is one, what is the goal for the asset is this a long-term generational asset in which case maybe we should put longer term money on it or is this a transitional deal where you're going to be doing some work and you may want to get out in five years if you want to get out in five years maybe you can tolerate a slightly higher interest rate especially if you're going to be creating additional noi during that hold period so it's uh you know that's that's certainly one factor that you that you want to pay attention to you want to look at the duration of that of that loan, not only in the context of of that particular transaction, but also your other deals. Do you want all your deals maturing in seven years? Well, no, you don't, because now if the world gets even worse than it is today, now you're faced with a whole wall of refinances. So we want to look at staggering those maturities. Now you know, uh, if, if three, five, seven, ten, whatever, whatever the case may be, um, and then as you prepare to go out and. Look at a refinance, especially if it is in the future, 6-12 months. Take a look at your expenses. Make sure that you are managing those expenses very, very carefully, that you are scrubbing the the statements that ultimately will show up in the lender's hands, Um, because uh, particularly if you have a loan in place and you have to just submit your your annual financials, sometimes you just press the button, spit it out of the accounting software and hand it over. And That's fine for the in-place lender but a new lender will look at that and say well maybe your maybe your payrolls up too high. Well, okay, well we had we had someone come on on a contract basis that's not normalized, we should pull that out. Maybe RM is too high. Well, we had we had an unusually high snow plow, so that's something we should pull out. Take a look at those expenses. Make sure you you're out in front of what those statements look like so that when it comes time to refinance, they are already clean. You're not have to go back and and recheck everything. Because you know, the cleaner the expenses, not only will be will there will be less scrutiny from the from the lenders, but higher NOI, more loan proceeds. In addition to uh, maintaining and and this is something I think it's good practice for everybody, probably at least on a quarterly basis, make sure that your your you know personal financial statement, your REO schedule is up to date and you're and you're maintaining uh, an accurate depiction of what your overall portfolio looks like. Again, just less scrutiny from the lenders later and less work that you have to do once you actually do go out and try to find that loan. Sounds great. And then too, I think just kind of to add with the maturity
0: conversation, you know, a lot of these lenders, uh, so Freddie SBL, Chase comes to mind where they have a fixed rate term in the loan, but then a floating rate period that goes on for a long time. Yeah, i think Freddie sbl most of those loans they were doing if it was a five-year fix then there'd be like a 15-year floating rate period mm-hmm. same thing with chase i think it was for you'd know better than me but for a whole 30-year period where it started floating um so i think if you know that like think of that as a positive like those kind of loans where it's you know you have a lot more optionality on when you need to refi because one thing that we notice in some of our deals and you uh, you had mentioned you had just advised the client about this uh, just right before we started recording but let's say you have a loan that's maturing in the next year and then with this freddy sbl program which is what it was then it goes floating rate but it doesn't just you know snap your fingers as we say It'd go right to the new rate with it it's there it can go only go up by a certain amount initially for, and then it readjust in six months so before if rates stayed where they were before it gets sort of where the rate's really painful, I mean, it might be a year and a half, you know, take three adjustments. So that loan that, you know, is coming due next year, it really is like, you don't have to do anything with it, you know, for two, three years, like take your time on uh, on refinancing, like those kind of loans, I'd say. Because obviously if you have a hard maturity date, then no, like this doesn't apply. But if you, a lot of people took those loans, I'd imagine thinking like, well, I'll refi before the fixed rate period's even done. This right. is really what I do. And now, you know, you'd be like me and you're actually reading this. How does this adjustable period work that I've never gone in? And you're like, oh, it only can go up by this much in the, f- the first adjustment period. Well, that won't be so bad. My rate's at like four right now. Right. And so then it'll go to, I don't have in front of me, whatever the most it can go up. It, so that's not so bad. Then it goes, you know, up again in six months. But well, by then maybe rates have fallen. Um, so anyways, just to add on that where, yeah, don't... Uh, yeah, definitely want to stagger your maturities and then if you can have that floating rate right tail on,
1: on a loan product, that's the and, way to go. And you talk to your 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 mortgage broker. If if you have a, a qualified, trustworthy mortgage broker, they will advise you on what is the best path forward. They will advise you that if you do have a Freddie Mac small balance loan that's reaching maturity right now, and it will only roll up 100 basis points every 6 months. They will tell you don't do a thing. You're still in the money. Let it go another 6 months, you're probably at the money. You have, you know, you have that time to figure things out. And that, you know, that that counsel that advice from someone who is in the market is of 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 course I'm inclined to say this given my role. But we really do add value in that regard. If someone's telling you, you have to do this right now, well, they're, they're probably just out trying to make a fee. But if you really do have an advisor that's looking out for your best interest, they should know what those loan documents say, what the rest of the environment looks like and able to advise you appropriately the path forward.
0: Yeah, then that's my one more tip. Call Steve Kunder. You know, that's <laughs> that's yeah, the best tip I've heard. Yeah, good on, uh, good on you with that advice. Yeah, I didn't think of that either where, right, you're advising this, this person to base to do nothing, but you know, that doesn't, doesn't help you today, but you know, giving good advice will help you long-term. Um, so that's good on you to do that. Um, so great. Well, yeah, thanks for being on again. So how, how can people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah. If, uh, anyone wants to get a hold of me, you can feel free to uh, reach me on uh, email at, at Steve.Kundert, S-T-E-V-E dot K-U-N-D-E-R-T at dot or feel free to reach me on my cell phone, 312-213-8757. All right, awesome. Thanks for being on. Thank you for having me.
0: If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The
1: views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.